Welcome to Automotive Insiders, the podcast series presented by OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. You'll hear from automotive industry experts on the critical issues that are impacting the mobility landscape. Get actionable insights on how to thrive in Automotive 2.0. Now, here's your Automotive Insiders host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Very happy to be here with my special guest today. He is Ken Lombardo at Kerr Russell. Ken, welcome. So nice to see you. We're here on Zoom. We'll have probably have a video of this, but for now, it's audio. So, Ken, would you do me the honor, please, of introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do at Kerr Russell and how'd you get involved in automotive law? Ken. Sure. Uh, thank you, first off, uh, for having me today. Um, I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm a corporate attorney at Kerr Russell & Weber in Detroit. I've been practicing law for over 25 years now. Um, hard for me to say that. I can't, ima- I can't believe it's, the time has gone by that quickly. I've been with Kerr Russell for a total of 15 years. That's broken up into two segments. I was with Kerr Russell for eight years left to go in-house for a automotive supplier, publicly traded out of California, uh, in the alternative fuel space. It was very interesting. So I was 10 years as general counsel for them, and then uh, left in September of 2016, came back to Kerr Russell, where I continue to practice in the corporate group with an emphasis on mergers and acquisitions and the automotive industry in general. And prior to Becoming a lawyer, I had five years of experience at Deloitte and Touche in both the audit and tax group. And in terms of how I got to become an automotive-related attorney is just my first job when I when I started with Kerr Russell as a young attorney was selling a, an automotive supplier. So at Kerr Russell, we do quite a bit of work with automotive suppliers, uh, both transactional litigation and uh, my, my emphasis, of course, is on the transactional side. And from supply agreements and the like, and, and but like I mentioned, my, my emphasis is primarily in the the M and A space. Thank you, Ken. I bet over the years you've seen big changes in automotive. We're all seeing big changes in terms of the types of vehicles we're looking at, in terms of the ups and downs of supply chains, probably in terms of automotive law. Before we get into some important topics, you and I are going to cover any reflections on what's happening in automotive. And I will tell you that I've been hosting and producing Automotive Insiders for OESA for about a year now. And I remember one of my earliest guests was Julie Freem. Very, very smart lady. She is the president and CEO of OESA. And she told me what, to me, being a non-automotive insider, was a shocker. This was early early pandemic times in 2020. And she said that the U.S. automotive industry had come literally to a grinding halt and production had been stopped at that point for 47 days. So I bet from a legal side, you've seen so many changes. Any comments on what we've just come out of before we we're coming out of reemerging before we get to your topics, Ken? Yeah, my comments are, are not so much what we're coming out of in terms of the pandemic, but what I want to address is the, the, the shift in internal combustion engine to electric vehicles and autonomous driving. And the reason that's so interesting to me right now is when I went in-house for that publicly traded company, that's exactly the type of stuff we were doing back in 2005. So unfortunately for that company, it was a, a bit ahead of its time because as you can imagine, the research and development expense 
for that industry was significant. And so we were doing a lot of research and development, not generating a lot of revenue because I, I, you know, the auto, the electric vehicles, the plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, they, people talked about them and they thought, thought it was, yeah, it's a good idea, but nobody really cared that much. And what I see happening today, the company that I used to be with, if, if it could have survived through uh, the economic downturn uh, back in 2008, 9, and 10, uh, I, I can't even imagine how successful it'd be right now. We were doing hydrid, hydrogen propulsion vehicles. We were doing plug-in electric hybrid uh, vehicles. We had one of the first PHEVs on the road um, developed with a, a world-renowned automotive designer. And it, it's just, uh, I kind of shake my head thinking, boy, if, if I were there today, if that company were starting today, it would just be hugely successful. The technologies we had were way ahead of its time. Very interesting. I'll, I'll look back. I'm glad I asked the question, Ken, because that is fascinating. If if I could be there, if they were starting now, look at the new environment and the exciting times for automotive that are on the brink of becoming reality. And I often ask my guests, fast forward to 2025, will you still be driving, physically holding a steering wheel? Will you still have keys to a car in your pocket or on the table on the way out of your house? Will you be a passenger? Will you be directing an autonomous vehicle? Will you be cargo in the back of the car? Will you be on a ride share, a special car for the country, the city, for for a picnic, for a ski trip? Will you be dropping off one type of car and picking up another? So it's a very exciting time. But let's get to the business of automotive law, which is your specialty, Ken Lombardo. Uh, first question I want to ask you, and it's a, it's a big question. Why is business succession planning important, especially in the automotive industry? And the second part of that question is, how does it impact suppliers? This is really, really important for our audience. So, Ken, I'm going to put you on speaker view. Talk to me. Yeah, as you mentioned, that is a big question. There, there's a lot of reasons why it's important. And, and what's really interesting is the fact that, you know, studies have shown that less than 50%. Before I start, I just do want, I do want to caveat that this, this podcast is, is generally geared towards the smaller, closely held companies. Mm-hmm. Public companies, the succession planning focus would be much different. But here, what we're talking about is really somebody's livelihood, something they've probably built from scratch. And uh, as they've progressed through time, now they're getting towards the end of their uh, working career. And now they're looking to transition, hopefully transition into a a nice, uh, successful retirement. And uh, my experience with my clients is very few of them have a succession plan. Hmm. And, you know, let me start with a couple of examples that that show the importance of it. One of them, a a client of ours was very, very successful automotive supplier had a really good management team in place uh, in the various disciplines needed to run the business. However, the CEO was a very, very, um, he had all the customer relationships and he, he had an unfortunate health uh, incident and what was a very successful, and there was really nobody he prepared to step into his shoes. And so what was a very successful supply company, supplier company, slowly began to deteriorate and you started seeing key employees leave. You started seeing customers leave. You started seeing bank, the bank um, concerned about the company's ability to pay. So a very successful company a few years later ended up basically selling for liquidation value. And um, it not only impacted, you know, the shareholders, a lot of employees lost their jobs, 
So that that's that's a company that probably had that thought they had a succession plan in place because they had a good management team in various disciplines, but the key person didn't do a good enough job bringing somebody up underneath him to take over his role. And so a lot of confusion once he was unable to perform his duties, a lot of confusion set in quickly. Uh, a, a good example is we had a client that about two, they were all probably in their 50s and 60s and had a very successful uh, automotive supplier company. And all three of them were in agreement that they wanted to, to sell the company. And so they, they started early. They, they hired investment bankers. They hired accountants and lawyers to, to really prep the company for sale. And meanwhile, they had also um, trained various people to step into the shoes of CEO, COO, and CFO. So when it came time to sell, they, they, they had the time to, to identify the target companies. They, they wanted to go with the strategic buyer because they wanted a, an easy walk away from, from the business after, after the sale. And so the process went seamless. We had a clo- uh, uh, from LOI to close in less than six months. Mm. All three of them got paid out at close and, and were able to walk away with no disruption in the business. So it, why it's so important is, especially for automotive suppliers, is, is the key is you've got to have a stable continuation of the business with minimal disruption. And from a customer standpoint, you know, everything in automotive is just in time. And, and you know, they, they've done a lot of background checks on the supplier, make sure the quality is what it needs to be. Any kind of disruption raises concerns at the customer level. And if, if you look at the purchase order terms and conditions, any, anything that they don't like, you know, could be grounds to terminate the, 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 the uh, contracts. So, you know, there's termination for convenience clause. There's any kind of disruption that delays delivery or, or you know, jeopardizes quality, termination provisions. And then you also, of course, have the, the indemnification provisions if, they're, if they are damaged. If the disruption does cause a delay in delivery, it shuts down a line. Just think of the damages that the, that the supplier could be on the hook for under the indemnification provision. And, and then another reason that the succession plan is so important is it really focuses the, the owners to think long term. They so often, you know, they're busy with the day to day activities. You know, what what can I do today to make my business better? What what I you know I'm worried about my cash flow, but to really adopt a, a, a full, broad. Uh, business succession plan, you got to think long term. And what's going on in the automotive industry right now is a perfect example. A lot of these suppliers are internal combustion related. Now we're switching to EVs and, and autonomous driving. How can that supplier adapt? So it really, it's a time consuming process and it requires a lot of thought, but it does force force you to take the time to think long term where's my if I want to retire in five years is my company going to be able to adapt to what's going on today to to protect my nest egg you know most Mm -hmm. often a lot of these owners their nest egg is tied up in the business Mm -hmm. and if they want to have that comfortable retirement they've got to figure out a way to not only maximize value but also preserve that value for when they do uh, transition out of the company. Uh, and, and in part of the process of, of focusing long term, it, it requires you to take a look at who do you have in the company right now? Is there somebody there that can step into the shoes of the CEO, of the CFO, of the CEO? Do you, do you need to bring in outside people? And, you know, if, if the idea is I'm just going to hand it off to my children, 
do your kids do your kids want to even run the business? Is it something that they have the same passion for that you do? Uh, do they have the competency to do it? It's uh, as much as we would all love our children to to be the smartest person in the room. That's not always the case, and, and they just may may not have the the ability to run the company successfully. Um, and, and then if you, if you don't have the internal people that you can train, and, and, and it's not like you can train them in 30 days. You got to start thinking. If my exit strategy is five years out, you should be starting to train somebody, you know, within three to five years of, of when you plan to leave, because it's it's a long process. You need to get that person out in front of the customers. Uh, you know, obviously keeping the customers happy, giving them some comfort that if if and when the transition occurs, there's not going to be a disruption in the business. Um, and then if you don't have the internal people you need to start looking outside the company. And, and it really requires an honest assessment of, of your current people, your, mm-hmm. your own family members. Um, if you have multiple family members involved in the business, what kind of impact it could, could the, your decision have on family relationships? Unfortunately, uh, you know, even though I'm on the transaction side, I see it enough in the litigation side. The worst litigation involving automotive suppliers is when family dispute happens it, because it's so personal. Um, you know, one, one child thinks he should have been president. The other child thinks that another child thinks that you're taking out too much compensation. You, have make, you may have kids that aren't involved in the business at all. And all they care about is making sure they get maximum distributions out of the company. And then they question everybody's compensation. So there's a lot of family uh, interaction that you need to be cognizant of. It, and, and it requires a lot of communication with your family members as to what your plans are, why you're planning to do it. Uh, you've got to ask your kids, do you want to run this business? Are you, are you willing to take it over? Um, do you think you can do it? And, and, mm-hmm. and hopefully, you know, the more com- uh, communication you have with your, your kids, it'll help kind of direct you in terms of what your exit strategy is going to be. Thank you, Ken. This is fascinating. And, and thinking about exit strategies and the whole idea of succession planning and the importance, I was going to say that, the stuff you're talking about with do your kids want it and are they just looking for the payout at the end of that rainbow whenever you decide to take your parachute, whether it's golden or not. This is the stuff that movies and mystery TV shows are made of as, as what happens with the family. And we know there have been some big time, uh, not necessarily in automotive TV shows done in the past few years about that exact topic. But Ken, let, let's just... Back wheel, backtrack a little bit. When somebody creates a business plan for a new company or a spinoff company or something that they want to do, should succession planning be a line item? Maybe I'm going out on a limb on this, but it, it's I'm curious about it. Should there be a line item on the original business plan about succession planning? Should it start in the first year, in the first six months, in the first five years? Should there be a tentative exit strategy? I think I want to exit, as you say, in. I want to be here for five years or 10 years who nobody knew about the pandemic which set businesses either to close sooner or to need to catch up and stay around longer right Ken so is how do you how do you integrate that thought process succession planning and exit strategy in what timeline does it happen for the business owner or the lead manager I hope that's an okay question Sure. Yeah. I mean, ideally, you would say, as, as an attorney, you would say, of course, you should you should consider it on day one. But yeah, that, that's not going to be the case. I mean, if, if it's a startup company, the risk of it failing immediately isn't as great as if the company's been running for five years and you, you've developed a very successful business with a lot of customers. But 
uh, you know, keep in mind that succession planning is also a risk mitigation tool because we, while we all think we're going to live until we're 100, that, that, that's not always the case. Unfortunately, uh, an owner, CEO passes away as a permanent disability. And uh, if you don't have a succession plan to address an, an unforeseen uh, immediate event like that, that's where you can really run into some, some problems very quickly. Because most often, in a smaller supplier in particular, you've got the owner, probably a type A personality, very, uh, you know, he runs the whole show. And if something happens to that owner, mm -hmm. uh, the, the employees aren't going to know what to do. Yep. Very, very interesting topic. And anything you'd like to add? Is there a formula that goes with, oh, I'm just going to say at the age of the owner, if somebody starts a business at 29 years old versus 49 years old versus 59 years old, is they, you'd better have your exit strategy. I don't know. I, I never plan to retire. So it, it wouldn't matter to somebody like me, but for people who really love their business, love their jobs, love their companies, do they need to have an exit strategy or is it something that would fall through the cracks legally? What's your advice? Well, I, I, yeah, as you said, you'd never plan to retire, and that's often the, the, the mindset of, of the owners. And then without a business succession plan in place, you know, one day they may wake up and just decide, you know what, I've had enough. And now, and let's say they may just say, I've had enough, I want out now. Mm -hmm. And so now you're, you're really limited on what your exit strategy can be. If you, if you start planning for it, I mean, in terms of an age, I, I don't really know if there's uh, an age of the person as opposed to the age of the company. As the company gets bigger and more successful, I think it's important to really start thinking about uh, the succession plan, whether, as I mentioned, not just for your own re um, exit strategy, but if, if there are unforeseen events. Now, if, if you do give it the proper amount of time, it's important that you control what the exit strategy is rather mm -hmm. than somebody else. If the exit strategy ends up being well, you end up passing away and now your surviving spouse takes over the company who has never been involved in the company. Uh, while you might think that nest egg that you've created for your surviving spouse and your children is, is substantial enough for them to, to, to live comfortably, it, 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 you're going to get a much less, lesser value for your company. Uh, things are going to go south um, without the proper management team to take it over. So it's really important to preserve, I mean, first off, it, it helps maximize value, but then as you get older and closer to retirement, the importance is preserving that value, not only for you, but also for your, your surviving spouse and, and other generations. Thank you, Ken. I'm thinking of the, the lead song in the musical Fiddler on the Roof. We need to change tradition to succession. <laughs> I, I think that would, would hammer the, the line home. Ken, any additional thoughts you have before we close? I, I will tell you, I'm really enjoying speaking with you, and you are certainly a wealth of information, and we appreciate that. So anything you want to add? The only, thing, the only thing I want to add is that when, when you think of your exit strategy, uh, by that, there, there's really three common exit strategies. One is sell to a third party. That third party could be strategic or it could be a financial private equity. Uh, it could be a, a sale um, to your employees, uh, whether it be a direct sale to a key employee. Perhaps you think about setting up uh, an employee stock ownership plan. 
and then also is the sale or transfer to your children, other family members, or your existing partners. Now, there's obviously pros and cons for each of those. If, if your goal is to get an immediate payout, maximum value, you're probably looking at a sale to a strategic buyer or mm-hmm. even a, a, a financial buyer. Now, if your goal is to get maximum value and completely walk away from the business, then you're probably looking at a strategic buyer. If you're willing to stay on for a few years, you may be able to get even more value by selling to a private equity type financial buyer. They will often leave the existing management team in and they'll expect you to stay in and not only to stay in for a certain number of years, but also to reinvest. So Mm -hmm. there may not be the complete separation from the company that a sale to a strategic would. And then on, on the sale of transfer of business uh, of, to the children or other business partners, the, ease of, the nice thing about that is it's much easier. You won't have the, the, the due diligence process that, that a financial or strategic buyer would put you through, which is very painful, very time consuming, very disruptive to the business. Um, and the downside is the price you get may not be as much. And also, how are they going to pay for it? Your children or a business partner may not be in a position to pay you for your full value. So now you might end up having to sell it on a note and then you're dependent on them to continue to successfully run the business in order to pay off that note. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Ken Lombardo, I want to do a shout out to your colleague at Kerr Russell, Rebecca Wenglinski. It's always good to see Rebecca and she supported us and your appearance behind the scenes and a shout out to Adam Slayman at OESA and Julie Freem and April Buford who uh, work with me on OESA Automotive Insider. So Ken, Thank you for your time. This has been fascinating. And remember, everybody, we have a new theme for the musical, whatever you want to call it, succession, succession planning, exit strategies, think, plan. Kerr Russell, thank you so much for bringing Ken to us. And Ken, why don't we just wave goodbye? Everybody be well. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA. Listen at your convenience to industry thought leaders as they discuss the ever-evolving industry and how companies can thrive in the new mobility landscape. All episodes are on demand on the Voice America Business Channel and at OESA.org. Automotive Insider is presented by the Original Equipment Suppliers Association.